It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to a special roundup edition of the Nature Podcast. I'm Benjamin Thompson. So listeners, here we are in the last full week of 2018, and I thought that this was probably the right time to have a little look back at some of the stories we covered on the podcast this year. But rather than pick these stories myself, I asked a few of our regular reporters to choose their favourite podcast piece and to tell us why they enjoyed making it. Later in the show, you'll hear from Lizzie Gibney and Sharmini Bundell. But first, Noah Baker tells us about his 2018 podcast highlight. The piece that I've chosen is from back in June, and it stuck with me, I think, because I got the opportunity to combine not only some really interesting science, but also some mystery and quite a bit of culture as well, which I don't often get the chance to do or certainly don't do as much as I'd like. So there was a study in Nature Plants which was investigating these ancient, bizarre, gigantic trees called baobabs. And I love baobabs. I think they're really incredible things. So that stuck out to me quite quickly when I saw the press release. But on reading the paper, it became clear that from my perspective, there was a lot more than I might expect from a botany study, there was scientific mystery. There was a very real and sometimes quite worrying consequence to what was being said in the paper, which you'll hear in a minute. And reporting it took me in all kinds of directions. So from the economic impacts of baobab trees through to the folklore surrounding them and the importance of them to many African peoples across the continent. And one of my contributors, Witness Konzanai, even recorded a song with his family on his phone and sent it to me via WhatsApp. And it ended up in the piece. It was a wonderful experience for me. I learned a lot and I hope you enjoy it. Growing up with name Baobab trees after, you know, maybe after their shape, if it is too ugly, say uh, this ugly one, if it produces a fruit, sweet fruit, we'll say this one is sweet mama. The baobabs are completely unique tree in, in, in lots of respects. Those sort of massive trees that are just about as, as wide as they're tall. It's probably the, mo- the oldest lived. It's certainly the largest uh, of the angiosperms, the flowering plants. It is a tree that every child will identify with. If you picture an African savanna, more likely than not, you'll picture a baobab tree. A solemn giant, somehow bulbous and spindly at the same time, often described as growing upside down. Now, new research investigating the age of baobabs has shown that many of the largest and oldest trees in the world are dead or dying, and scientists don't know why. 
Once upon a time, a long time ago, the creator invited all animals to his office so that he could give them trees, you know, seedlings for planting. That's witness Konzanai from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He's just finished his PhD on the governance of the baobab. And the hyena of all animals was very lazy and he went to the creator's very late. And when he got there, the only sitting that was left was the, that of a baobab tree. And he didn't impress the hyena. So in anger, the hyena took the seedling, threw it far away. That, that's, that's what happened. That's how, how the baobab ended up with such an uh, ugly shape. There are countless folktales like this one, each surrounding the baobab, many explaining its bizarre shape. Here's Chris Surridge, the editor of Nature Plants, with a scientific version. Normally, trees grow, they have a, they have a trunk, uh, and they pretty much have a, well, one trunk, and then they, they split off further up, up into branches. Uh, now, baobabs are a bit weird in that they, uh, through their life, can produce additional trunks uh, that come up out of the ground. You sometimes see the, you know, suckers come out of things like blackberries, but uh, the, the trees do not do this. Uh, but the baobab does. It throws up these, these extra trunks. Uh, a ring of stems which are then fused together to form this um, this empty uh, empty centre. They, they become sort of circular but with a gap in the middle. This is the leading theory for how baobabs have ended up so fat and also explains why, more often than not, they have huge cavities inside. This bizarre architecture leads to problems if scientists want to find out how old a tree is. Normally when you, when you try and date a tree, uh, you have to chop it down and count the rings into the centre, uh, or you, um, you put a bore in and you can do that and, and, and check these. But there's no centre to a baobab tree. So when researchers decided to measure the age of the largest baobabs known across the African continent, they had to turn to another method. Here's Adrian Petrut from the University of Babes Bolyai in Romania. The only possibility to date a baobab accurately is uh, to radiocarbon date samples collected from its stems. Radiocarbon dating is not uncommon when dealing with very old trees. In fact, trees are often used to calibrate carbon dating methods. Because counting tree rings is such a reliable way of measuring age, it can be used as a solid point of comparison. Adrian Petrut's team started surveying trees in 2005, and some of those they surveyed were truly ancient. The oldest trees were around 2,000 years old, and we found a specimen in Zimbabwe, the so-called Panke Baobab, and we collected samples which were up to 2,450 years old. These are trees which sprouted before Aristotle even proposed the division of the sciences, Trees which were already centuries old when Julius Caesar took the throne in Rome. This is just an incredible age. Trees are happy to grow for, for hundreds of years, but getting, getting up to the, the, these sorts of millennial ages uh, is something that the flowering plants, the flowering trees, just don't do. It's worth noting here that there are non-flowering trees which are even older. Now, when a baobab gets really large or old, it can take on a particular significance. Here's witness again. To an African person who identifies with these trees, once a tree becomes big, it becomes sacred. They become, you know, venues for spirits of the land. This significance adds even more weight to another discovery that Petrut and his team made. It was very unexpected to find that many old and large trees die in a very short time span. Specifically, they found that nine of the 13 oldest trees measured and five of the six largest trees have all died in the last 12 years. Now, these trees are all spread across Africa, sometimes thousands of miles apart. There was no sign of disease and the revered trees are usually very well cared for. They all even had names. 
It therefore seems too much of a coincidence that all of these deaths could happen by chance so suddenly. In fact, Petrut claims that it's impossible. Statistically, it's impossible for trees which have an age limit of over 2,000 years to die in such a large number over a such short time span. It begs the question then, what's causing the deaths of these baobabs? The obvious conclusion is that it's something environmental, uh, something to do with changes in climate. Uh, but again, that's very difficult to, uh, to nail down because over 2,000 years, these trees have seen a great deal of climate. I mean, they've lived through the little ice ages that happened in about the 1400s, 1500s. So they've seen much colder temperatures than now. They've seen droughts. They've seen um, practically floods. And yet they have carried through that. It is true that as far as we can tell, the temperature in these areas is warmer now than it has often been in the past. And it is also quite dry at the moment. So maybe this is going on. But we really don't know um, what it is that, uh, that is killing these trees, if indeed this is an unusual Uh, amount of deaths. It's an interesting scientific mystery. As an academic who works with the baobab, Witness too was intrigued. But for him, speaking as a Zimbabwean, the findings also represented something else. To ecologists, it is just the dying of trees. But to an African person, the death of such big trees means the death of culture. It means the death of identity. It means the death of spirituality. Increasingly, I think people are getting to know about climate change, even in the remotest areas. In fact, you don't need to be told you live it because you see your rivers drying. You see, you experience floods every year. But what I am not sure of is if people are able to relate the death of these trees to climate change. If the big trees are, are dying, I think what we need to do is to quickly establish what the cause is. Because for some communities, the baobab tree is a, it defines who they are. That was Noah's pick of 2018 from our 14th of June show. In it, you heard witness Kanzanai from the University of Cape Town, Adrian Petrut from the University of Babis Bulyai, and Chris Surridge, editor-in-chief of Nature Plants. The song you heard was performed by witness along with his wife and children. The next of our 2018 selections was chosen by Lizzie Gibney. Now, Lizzie has covered a bunch of physics stories on the podcast this year, looking at the pressure inside of a proton and finding out the latest about graphene superconductors, to name just two. But for this show, she's picked an interview she did with an award-winning scientist. The piece that I have chosen is an interview with Nobel Prize winner Donna Strickland. She, as many people have noted, was the third woman in history to win a Nobel Prize in physics. But much more than that, she is just a brilliant and interesting person. So her discovery was in the field of lasers and it was a big fundamental advance, but also it has loads of applications. And she just was the most humble and sociable seeming person that I've ever seen win a Nobel Prize, I think. Interviewing her really made me feel like I'd just like to go down and have a drink with her in the pub. She was very relatable. So she is definitely my favourite piece of the year. So listeners, first broadcast on our 10th of October show, here's Lizzie's interview with Donna Strickland. So first off, congratulations. I, underst- <laughs> I understand that uh, you know, if we take you back to last Tuesday, the call from Stockholm was something of a surprise? Of course, it was a total surprise, yes. And it's also at five in the morning, so... You know. 
And the research that you won for was done in 1985 while you were a PhD student experimenting with lasers. What was it that you were trying to achieve at the time? My PhD project was actually doing something that required a high-intensity laser. It was supposed to work in a way that many, many photons of light would interact with an atom all at the same time. And to do that, you need to have all of your photons squeezed into a small volume. So that's what we were trying to do. But unfortunately, if you do that inside your laser, it blows up. And so the idea came around to say, okay, what we have to do is not squeeze all the pulses first, stretch them out so that it's over a great big volume, amplify it up, and then when we have all of the photons in the great big volume, you can squeeze it back down to a small volume, and now you have a really intense source of light. And why is it that you wanted to improve the intensity of the lasers? Well, we wanted to interact with atoms in new ways, and this type of laser can now have a force on an electron that's bigger than the force that holds the electron to the atom. And also it can be done very shortly, and so the electrons simply fly off the atoms when they're um, inside these laser fields. So if they're a greater intensity, that's useful both in, in, in physics but also um, for applications, including corrective laser eye surgery? So when people get this corrective surgery, people would actually um, scalpel off the outside part of the cornea and then they would use the UV laser to reshape the cornea to a new shape so you could see and then put the flap back. What the ultrafast laser does is that because it doesn't have to just cut from the surface, it's only at the intense focal point that it does this damage where the electrons come off the atoms. You could actually put your uh, laser and scan it over your cornea and it would cut underneath that. Instead of using a metal scalpel, you can use a laser. Sounds like a much less painful process. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And it could be very precise with the laser. Now, I wish we didn't have to talk about gender. Um, I'm sure that's a topic that you've spoken about a lot this week. But um, as you'll be very well aware, um, you know, you're, of course, just the third woman to win a Nobel Prize in physics. I guess, first off, do you think that women are currently underrepresented among the Nobel laureates? Well, three in a hundred years or something. Uh, (laughs) I think there are, are a higher percentage of women doing fantastic science than that. So probably were underrepresented by the Nobel Prize, yes. And lots of people have asked you um, about being a woman in physics. And I, th- and I think you said so far that you feel like you have always been you know, treated fairly and, and, and paid well. Actually, the University of Waterloo is always very careful. At one point, I got this letter, you know, saying that we look into making sure that women are paid equal, but we realized, and the whole long line at the very end was, and you were being treated equal, so you won't get a raise. And I went, well, too bad, because I would have liked a raise, but at least I'm being treated equal. So, that's the way it is. <laughs> that's really good to know. And, and much has also been made of the fact that you are an associate professor rather than a professor. Um, and I think you said you'd, you'd never applied. Is that right? Yeah, now I really wish I just had. I had colleagues that were saying, why aren't you applying? You should be applying. And, and I sort of just said, okay, I'll probably do it next year. Um, and, and to get a bit meta, obviously, I, you know, I started um, these few questions by apologizing for asking you about the very fact that you're a woman. How is it felt over the past few days answering so many questions on that topic? I, I do hope that we do get to the point. We all hope we get to the point where this just becomes not discussed anymore. I mean, so hopefully soon there's enough women and enough people of color and enough people, you know, every every group out there that feels that they get the recognition they deserve. And then we don't have to talk about it anymore. 
Any, any suggestions on how we can reach that point? Either what you know, advice to to younger scientists, or or even to to the Nobels as to to how to make the system work better. I think we've been pushing for a lot of years, and I do feel like women's lib was talked about a lot in the 70s, and, and I certainly always felt that, you know, as a woman, I could do whatever the heck I wanted. You know, and maybe a lot of women who felt that got out there and did it, and maybe we let it slide again. Certainly, this is a moment in history where the women around the world aren't letting much slide anymore. So I think things are changing again uh, fairly quickly again. question is whether we can consistently keep moving forward until it's all done. And Donna, you now have an incredible platform from which to speak, being a Nobel laureate. Um, how, do you, how do you plan to use that? I don't know. It's, it's kind of a scary kind of thing because I am somebody who just talks a lot without thinking. And um, people have been quoting me back and I went, did I actually say that? Did I actually say that? So that's got me a little scared. Um, I will have to uh, practice not just saying the first thing that comes into my mind. And how has your life changed then since becoming a a Nobel laureate on Tuesday? Well, well, completely. (laughs) This this is just uh, completely crazy. And, um, you know, I got to talk to the Prime Minister of Canada for the first time ever. And uh, he was very nice about it because I said, this is like your life all the time. And he said, no, I don't always get to speak to a Nobel laureate. Wow. Well, enjoy it. Um, It sounds like it's hectic, but congratulations again. Thank you very much. The final piece in this year's roundup was chosen by Sharmini Bundell. In this case, she's gone right back to the start of the year. So I've chosen a pod piece that I vaguely remember. It was from all the way back in January, um, but it was actually about memory. See what I did there? And it was just some really fascinating science that we end up talking about that you're going to hear in a minute, uh, all about how to actually manipulate memories, which is something that really I thought should be in the realm of sci-fi. Have you seen that film, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? They go in, they like delete memories. Um, this is about researchers doing something vaguely similar, but in mice. So, without further ado, from our 11th of January show, here's Sharmini learning about the shape of memory. So, there's a feature out in Nature this week about memory. It asks, what does a single memory look like? Where is it stored in the brain? Which cells are involved? And what determines its particular shape? I got in touch with a neuroscientist who's working to answer these questions, Sheena Jocelyn. I first asked her how scientists define a memory. Everybody has their sort of colloquial definition. And I think we can probably all agree that it's some sort of representation in the brain of a past event or some sort of past learning that we can recall at a later point. And when people first were sort of studying memory, they were like, right, where is the memory section of the brain? That must be where the memories are stored. Um, but we've, we've since come to understand that memories are sort of more distributed across different brain areas. We're certainly not saying that there's like one specific cell that stores a memory, the grandmother cell. You know, you stimulate this cell and there's an image of your grandmother. Um, we, we now, as a field, I think, appreciate that memories are widely distributed in groups or ensembles of neurons that come together and, for whatever reason, the, these, these cells seem to be chosen and not other cells and they form a memory. And if there's no, you know, one cell, we can't identify the cell for a memory, how would we go about finding out which 
I guess, multiple cells or multiple areas are involved in any given memory? We're still at the sort of inference game. We infer that a cell or a brain region is important in a memory if we get someone to recall this memory and we see this brain area very active. So if you're looking at human memory, you put someone in an fMR scanner and you ask them to recall a memory, and those places that are more active, they have, you know, stronger blood flow, those are thought to be the ones that are really important in sort of retrieving this memory and probably really important in housing this memory. We do the same kind of experiments in experimental animals in the lab. So you have this vague idea that there is an association there with this memory and these particular cells, but how can you actually sort of test whether whether you're right about that? So we can ask what happens if we manipulate the activities of these cells when we ask mice to recall a memory, and what happens if we decrease their activity? Can they still recall the memory? So we go in and we can kill just these cells we think are really important in the memory, and we ask the mouse to recall a memory. The mouse shows us no evidence of recall. It's as if the memory has been erased. How do you know if a mouse is remembering something or not? Yeah, that's that's a, a question that we spend a lot of time in the lab discussing. And the only thing that we can do is we look at their behavior. So when a mouse is afraid, it shows this um, fear response, so it adopts this crouched motionless posture. So what we do in the lab is we pair um, an innocuous stimulus, such as a tone or a place, with a tiny electric foot shock. Now, it's not enough to cause the animals any sort of damage, but it's enough for the mouse to say, what the huh? And the cool thing is we can test memory by saying, well, the next time you hear this tone that we previously paired with the shock, do you show fear responses? And then the next step is to see if you can stop them remembering the association. Absolutely. So what happens if we perturb the function of this small population of cells? Do mice show us this freezing response? Do they remember? And it turns out that no, they don't. So it's like we're sort of turning off the memory. And the cool thing is it has to be these cells we perturb the function of. If we perturb the function of a bunch of other cells, we don't see this. So it's really specific. So getting rid of the memory is one way to prove that you've kind of got the right cells. You've found the cells for that memory. Um, But then there's also experiments on activating recall of an existing memory. I mean, you can always argue that there's multiple ways of decreasing a memory. But to actually bring a memory sort of out of the air, to have the animal bring to mind a memory without giving it an external retrieval cue, so in this case the tone, what we can do is just give it an internal retrieval cue. We artificially activate these cells. It's like we're bringing to mind this memory because the mouse freezes. So it's like we're cutting out the middleman, going directly to those areas of the brain we think are important in the memory. We cause the mouse to remember this memory, and they show us this by freezing. It's amazing that this uh, um, experiment worked and that it's been replicated so many different times. And it, I mean, it's just really cool that you're you're able to manipulate memories like that. But is manipulating memories, either activating it or getting rid of it, is that actually the point of the research? I don't think that anyone is in this business to sort of cosmetically change memories. What we really want to do is understand how memories are formed in the brain for two reasons. One, it's a really cool question. Our brains are sort of like the final frontier of science. It really tells us who we are and how we process information, how we encode information, is getting at understanding the brain at a very fundamental level. But it's also really important because there's an epidemic of memory disorders in the world. Everything from Alzheimer's to autism, which you can sort of phrase as being an information processing disorder. But the treatments are really lacking because we don't understand how memories are normally made. So your, your work is mainly on, on mice, but the research that's going on in humans is actually kind of 
um, backing up a lot of what you found. The fundamental things about how memories are encoded is really similar between mice and humans in the lab. And to me, if we get really converging evidence from two very different species doing very different tasks, yet the same answers still keep coming up, that is really exciting to me. It tells me that we're really on to something here. So there we have it, listeners. A few of our top stories from 2018, chosen by the reporters who made them. That's it for this special roundup edition of the Nature Podcast. And in fact, that's it for this year. Thank you to all of you for listening. We're going to take a little break, but we'll be back very soon. In the meantime, if you want to hear more great science stories from this year, head over to nature.com slash nature slash podcast, where you'll find all of our 2018 episodes. I've been Benjamin Thompson. See you all in 2019. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.